Let's join in prayer. Our gracious God, with thanks we come for the reading and the preaching of your word. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that want to obey. Give us minds that understand. Give us wills that will bow to yours and will seek to walk in your ways. Grant us these things as we think about your word together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've come so far into the book of 1 Kings to reach chapter 6. In this, the ninth message on this series on the life of Solomon from chapters 1 to 11. And the big subject that we've run into and we're going to be thinking more about is the building of the temple. Last week I said to you that of all the significant buildings that have ever been built, perhaps the Temple of Solomon's outweighs them all in terms of significance. The temple was to be the dwelling place of God on earth, the Lord God Almighty, in fact. This was no palace for the king. This was to be God's house. And as such, the details that we are given of the way it was to be built and the plan of it all are chock full of significance for us. So too is the fact that we have all this detail recorded for us. I'm not sure if such details exist concerning the construction of the Great Pyramids or any of the other buildings of this era. But look at what we've got in relation to the temple. Detail after detail after detail. And why is that we have so much detail? Because ultimately the builder and the architect of the, the, the temple itself was the Lord himself. It was all to be according to his design and plan. Nothing else would do. You couldn't just build whatever you wanted to as if that would do. No, this was always God's project and as such it had to be him who was in charge. Now Solomon is credited with writing two of the Psalms, though he may have written more and Psalm 127 is one of those. It's a famous psalm which seems to flow from the emphasis that we have in the chapter before us. Here, verse 1 of the psalm. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labour in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So as we kick off this section which looks at the temple being built, we want to take note of the most important part of this process and that was that which this psalm refers to, the blessing of God. Without it, nothing really mattered. Now sifting through the sorts of details we have before us in the text is kind of hard for us in our generation simply because we don't have the temple in front of us. 
And we can get lost in the myriad of details given to us and we can fail to appreciate the significance of any of them, let alone all of them. Especially so when every part of the temple is so significant and we will explore the various parts of the temple in future messages. But this morning I want you to note these matters that I think the text tells us that have some significance in this very important building project before us. There are three things we're going to think about this morning. The first is that promises were fulfilled. Promises were fulfilled. We find this in verse 1. In the 480th year, after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The opening tone of the chapter is very formal and it is so because the building of the temple is a momentous event. We gain from verse 1 that it's 480 years since the exodus that the temple was built. Why cast our minds back to the exodus? Why not count it off from some other event like the call of Abraham or the birth of Jacob or some other significant event in the life of God's people? Well, the answer is that when God brought the people of, e- of his people out of Egypt and gave them his laws, he began to hint at a place that would become central for worship. So in Deuteronomy 12, as we have on the screen, In verses 10 to 11 we read, But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. Then in chapter 16, verse 2, And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. See, in the plan that God revealed to his people, it was always anticipated there would be that central place of worship where God's people would gather. Jerusalem was so important because it would be the city where this happens. David securing the threshing floor for the Ark of the Covenant to be placed kind of caps off the book of 2 Samuel. It was an important event because that would be the site eventually where the temple would be constructed. And so here we see the faithfulness of God ensuring that the promise he made about dwelling in the midst of his people had actually come to pass. God foretold that this place would be set apart and he would dwell in their midst and now that promise is being fulfilled. It's taken 480 years, but it was no less certain for taking that long. This reminds us, doesn't it, 
that some of God's promises are far off. They seem to be for us anyway, but they're still certain. Whether it's the promise of his coming or the promise of the new creation or the promise of the final defeat of the evil one, it may yet be far off, but it's still certain. We witness the faithfulness of God here in the text, but we can also reflect on the faithfulness of God that we know, that we have experienced and still expect to know into the future. Some of his promises that are ongoing. 1 Kings 6 marks the fulfilling of a great promise, but we live having experienced the fulfilment of a greater one. Think of the promise of Jesus in John chapter 14, 16 to 18. When he said to his disciples, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Think then that on the day of Pentecost that the Spirit was sent in fulfilment of this promise. And when we came to faith in him, we too received the Spirit so that we too become temples of God with God dwelling in us individually and corporately. See, the promises of God are certain and they make us richer than anything this world can offer. We are not alone. We are not estranged. We are not forsaken. We are united to him by promise and that forever. So from... The promises that were fulfilled, we move to the details that were recorded in verses 2 to 10. Verse 2 gives us the dimensions, first of all. The house the King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. It was 27 metres long. It was 9 metres wide. It was 14 metres high. It was not as big as the other temples of this time, Though until Solomon's palace was built, it would have been the tallest building in Jerusalem, about four storeys high. Set on the Temple Mount, on the top of the hill, it would have been a very significant building to behold. Verses 3 to 6 give us the description of various parts of the building, with verse 3 telling us of the entrance, which is also called the vestibule, which added another 4.6 metres on the front. The main section, which in the tabernacle would have housed the altar of incense, the showbread and the lampstand, is called the nave. We're told that Solomon built windows into the section. Verse 5 to 6 describes something not found in the tabernacle, and that was a surrounding structure with which had three levels, which did not quite reach up to the structure, the the top of the temple roof. Uh, Since the temple was so high, uh, this likely acted as a structural support and created extra space for storage and accommodation for priests. The last words of verse 6 indicate that this external support was provided so the integrity of the temple itself would not be tainted. For it says, For around the outside of the house he made offsets on the wall 
in order that the supporting beam should not be inserted into the walls of the house. The temple was a separate unit, therefore, with no intruding structures from the outside. But not only are we told what was to be built, we're told how it was to be built. And verse 7 reveals something worth noting. It tells us that this building project, unlike any other, was done with reverence to the point that not a sound was heard. Now, you all know the sounds of building sites. And if you've had a house being built next door to you, or even demolished next door to you, you'll know that the associated noise can go on for months and months. But here we read that when the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe or any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. Silence on the Temple Mount seems to be a mark of respect and it seems that Solomon was applying his own wisdom in terms of the preparation as per Proverbs 24:27. Prepare your work outside, get everything ready for yourself in the field and after that build your house. It would have been a building site like no other and one that later prophets would also refer to, such as Habakkuk 2.20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Zechariah 2.13. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Since the temple is a picture of the body of Christ and since we've already connected that with we being the living stones, we can think of this work of quarrying the stone and shaping it to fit how it would have been a place there would have been lots of noise and dirt and dust going into people's eyes. And the parallel we find is this, that this is where we are right now in the process of We're in the quarry of sanctification. Living stones being worked over, smoothed, chiselled, polished. The troubles and the trials and the stresses of your life that you have known recently, those are from God. Even though there may have been moments when you reacted badly and the devil got a foothold through temptation, God allowed these things in order to fit you into his temple, to work on you, to sanctify you. Remember, all the pain you go through has a purpose. You are in his quarry, under his supervision, being worked over by the master craftsman to turn you from being what some people call a diamond in the rough to become a jewel in the crown of the one who loved us and saved us. Thirdly, of significance, perhaps more than anything else, was the responsibilities that were encouraged. I think the most important part of these verses before us is the moment where God interrupts the building process. 
with an important message. As we find in verse 11 to 13, a message that laid upon Solomon the heavy and weighty duty of walking before the Lord with his whole heart. Now think on this. Think how easy it would have been for us to note only the externals of this most beautiful temple, to note its size and its building materials, and in doing so miss out on the perspective that the Lord God brought to the building. Externals are one thing, Solomon. It may well be a beautiful building, but the temple is but a building. What matters more to me, Solomon, more than the building itself, is your heart. So we note that God uses the language of things being conditional. As we see the words, if you, then I. And he brings into this the weight of immense responsibility If you are obedient, then I will be with the rest of your people. Put yourselves in the the king's shoes for a moment and feel the burden of duty. The lesson is very stark and very weighty. You can have all the trappings of this amazing temple that you're building. But what is it if your heart is not intent on walking before the Lord in obedience? Talk about Psalm 127 verse 1. Those who labour do so in vain. There can be no doubt there would have been moments when Solomon would have looked at the building and pat himself on the back for the way in which the temple conformed to the external standards of success. It was big and visible. It was going to be covered in gold. It was an architectural accomplishment, a wonder of that world. It was a step better than what his father had achieved. Solomon's looking good, but what does it all matter If Solomon is not honouring God in his heart, what is it? What are you left with? You're left with bricks and mortar. Nothing that counts in terms of eternity. Well, isn't this an important reminder for all of us? Is the business going well? Are you healthy? Do you have all the apparent trappings of success? We should and we need to apply this to ourselves, our families, our businesses and even to our church. It doesn't matter how well we are presenting to the newspapers or the spectators of our lives. If our hearts are not tuned to God in obedience, no matter what we achieve, God's blessing will be absent and the work will be in vain. Let me ask you, are you walking in his will? Are you grieving the spirit through hardening your heart, what the spirit is saying to your conscience? Are you refusing to repent of a sin and remove it 
to kill it in your life. Success in life is not measured by ease, comfort, accomplishments or a lack of trouble, but by a humble walk before the Lord. There are many people who present well. Oh, they've got temples of gold who do not have the blessing of God Almighty. Let this warning remind you of its importance for your life. Externals don't count. Internals do. And so in this conditional promise to Solomon, note well that if he obeys, three things will happen. Firstly, God says, I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David. In other words, if Solomon obeys the Lord, he will keep the throne and his sons after him. Secondly, if Solomon is the king obeys, then God will dwell among his people. This is likely, this is likely alluding directly to the temple and God dwelling there, his presence being there as it was in the, te- in the tabernacle. Thirdly, if Solomon obeys the Lord, then God will not forsake his people, but will be their God and all that that implies. All this seems to be unsure and uncertain, even up in the air. There's a lot of ifs here. It's been so far so good for Solomon, hasn't it? And at this point in time, Solomon is walking before the Lord and God knows this. But God also knows the way that Solomon is going to go. He knows that idolatry will grow like a creeping vine into his heart and consume it. And yet God still tells him, here it is, here's the path for you. If you follow this path, I will fulfill the promises I made to Abraham and David through you. It's amazing of God to do that, knowing that Solomon would break every one of these conditions. And so on the one hand, we see this promise right at the outset of building the temple is a lens through which you understand the rest of Israel's history. Because the king will not obey God, God will withdraw his blessing. Because the king does not obey God, God will give Israel over to her enemies. The rest of God's dealings with Israel can be understood just by these verses. Now this seems very depressing and final and seems to fly in the face of the unconditional aspects of some of the promises given to Abraham and David, even to Adam and Eve. And this is where we need to understand the way the covenants are structured. The covenant of grace which was promised in Genesis 3.15 was an unconditional promise of God. It pointed forward to a second Adam who will fulfil that promise and come and be the seed of the woman and the crusher of the serpent. The failure of the human king to be that second Adam and be fully obedient and win God's blessing for his people should cause us to ask questions. Who then will be the one, if it's not Solomon, who will crush the serpent's head? Who then will be the seed who will bless the nations? Who will be the one who sits on David's throne forever? 
with the answers to all those questions found in the one Solomon points to in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, how to conclude? Well, you and I are not called to build temples for the Lord, but we are always building something. And so let's take these words the Lord gave to Solomon and apply them to ourselves. If you will walk in my statutes, God still requires a walk of holiness before him. That's what he requires of us. Works cannot save you. Works will not save you. But if you have a right relationship with God, your works will reflect it and you will want to walk in obedience to the will of God. The things you desire to do will all become things that are right and good and pleasing to him. We cannot say that we love God, as we heard from 1 John 2, and then do those things that hurt our relationship with him. You can't say that. You can't not walk you can't walk in the darkness if you claim to be in the light. Which of us can say that we love our children, our husband, our wife, our family, but then on the one hand we ignore them, abuse them, and main, and yet want to maintain a close and loving relationship at the same time with God. Yet that's the way most people who call themselves believers treat their relationship with him. Then the words, and execute my judgments. God's judgments are always tempered in love and compassion, with a way of escape for those who will turn back to him in repentance. Surely he must punish sin, for the wages of sin is death. And that sentence must be carried out, but God in his great mercy has given us a way of escape from that as well. His judgments are carried out, but through Jesus our death is paid for and we can live forever. Without Christ that sentence of death is still there and we shall surely die if we would only learn to punish those who do wrong against us using the same love and compassion, principles that God uses towards us, then so much would be different about us as his people. Then the words, and keep all my commandments to walk in them. If you want your temple, sorry, if you want your heart to be a place where God dwells, then learn that obedience is the way. And note well that this is where Solomon came undone. He found out what happens when your heart leads you astray. He lost his kingdom and maybe even his soul. Let's not follow in that king's footsteps. But in our king's footsteps and build upon the rock of his perfect obedience and his perfect heart the heart being desperately wicked above all things will lead us astray. But the heart of Christ is always inclined to do the will of his Father. Will you do that? Will you pray to be more like him? Let's pray.
Lord our God, we do thank you that your word is written for us. We hear your call to Solomon, that you wanted obedience from him, not just the externals of a building, but the internal response calling to him to follow him, follow you with all his heart. Lord, we confess that our hearts lead us astray. So being desperately wicked they are, how deceitful they are. Grant to us a love for you that will mean that our hearts are inclined to do your will so that we might be effective and visible temples of the living God who lives in us, who dares to put his spirit in us so that we might live before you and be blameless. Grant this, we pray, because by ourselves we can't, but only with your help we can, and we ask for that help to walk before you and be blameless, and for a heart that loves you and never turns astray. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.